There was a story I read this past week about a man named Rowland from the 1840s. How many of you have a friend named Rowland? R-O-W-L-A-N-D. That's about what I thought. <laughs> I had never heard of this man's first name. Uh, I've always seen his name written in initials. Uh, but his name is Rowland. And he got this great idea back in the 1840s. He was going to open what he called a dry goods store. And so he opened his first dry goods store, and it failed miserably. Nobody bought anything except maybe his mama. Nobody would buy anything. Well, he decided, okay, well, it was just bad location. And so he went in with his brother, and they opened a, another one in California, right in the middle of the gold rush, 1850. And nobody bought anything at his dry goods store in the middle of the gold rush in 1850. I don't know if he sold bad products, or they just didn't like him, or they liked the other dry goods store down this road that maybe had cheaper stuff. I don't know. But, uh, I mean, he had the location, he had the demand, but people just didn't buy anything. And he failed a second time. So he thought, well, I'm going to try again. And so he opened up another one, this time in Massachusetts. He went across the country, and old Rowland opened him another dry goods store. And he thought, a different location, Massachusetts, different part of the country, these people, they, they, they're going to want to buy what I got. Well, they didn't. And his third dry goods store bombed terribly. And it took him a, a couple years to recover. So he opened up another one. Dry goods store number four. And it did just like all the other three. And nobody bought anything at his store again. And he had to shutter the doors and windows. You would think by now old Rowland would be getting, you know, a little discouraged. Or he might be thinking, maybe dry goods are not the place for me. Maybe I need to do something. Maybe wet goods. Maybe that's the store I need to go to. Maybe something else. But he thought, you know what? I'm going to do this one more time, and I'm going to go to the biggest city in the country. I'm going to go to New York City. I'm going to open me up a dry goods store. Well, he went to New York City, and he scouted around trying to find the right location. And the place that seemed to be the best place to buy property, to rent property, to open up a store, was way too expensive for him, having had fail, or four failed stores. And so he went to this north part of town where nobody opened a dry goods store. There weren't any stores up there. Because they said, people up on that part of town don't buy stuff from these kind of stores. They just, they just don't. So it's no good to go up there and open anything. Well, for Rowland, that was the only place he could afford. So he bought a place up there, north part of town, and opened it. Dry goods store. First day, he's all pumped and excited. Opens the door. You know how much money they make on their first day? $11. Which in today's money is worth $340. Which if you've just dropped... A whole bunch of money on all these products, on all this uh, accoutrements to put in your store, and you've bought the store, $11 isn't going to go very far. But he kept going next day, next day. He said, we're going to keep going. We're gonna, this, this is my time for a comeback. Well, Christmas was, was close because he'd opened his store in the fall, and he had some unique ideas. You see, his store was built in a very different way. It had these big old windows on the front. And O'Rallen has a thought, you know what would, what would be really cool is people walking by, because people walk by my store all the time, is I'm going to build these like window displays that kind of not only show what we have in the store, but kind of a setup of how you can use my products, like have a little living room set up with all our products, and have a little setup over here of all our products. He closed them off and he put lights in there so people walking by in the daytime or at night can see his window displays. Other people weren't doing this. They thought you walk by, you just look in the store, you can see everything. 
Rowland had this idea of window displays. And then when Christmas arrived, he got him another idea that nobody was doing. He goes, you know what would be great to get people to come in the store is if I somehow got Santa Claus to come to my store. So he got Santa Claus to come to his store, and he had a Santa display, and kids would come up and tell Santa what they wanted for Christmas, and they would give him like a little lollipop or a peppermint uh, 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 stick, and they would walk back out. And that went gangbusters, and now his store is exploding, and he expands into the areas next to him. He opens up another location, and his store, his, his little store, after four failed attempts all over the country, his store becomes one of the most successful department stores in the history of department stores. And his last name was Macy. Surely you've heard of Macy's. If not Macy's, maybe Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. And all this... Because a guy failed four times at his dream, but he never gave up. Every time he thought, this is my comeback story right here, right now. I'm going to open this one, and it bombed. Open another one, it bombed. Until he got to the right one. You know, in our own lives, no matter how many times we have failed, sometimes we can get to a point where we feel like, well, I'm just done. Like, there's no more opportunities for me. This is as far as I go. This is rock bottom until the bottom falls out, and you realize there's more bottom on, under the bottom, and you get a little lower than that. Well, we're going to take a look today at a guy who got, who felt like life was going pretty great, and it took a turn, and he discovered a bottom below the rock bottom that he never thought would exist. So turn to Matthew Chapter 26, if you're using a Bible in the pew rack, it's on page 832, which, as I say every week, if, if you do not have a Bible, you're welcome to take one of those Bibles home. Everybody needs one, and that, that can be yours for all time. Don't worry about feeling weird about taking something out of the church. Uh, that's your Bible, free, take it. So page 832, Matthew chapter 26, we're going to start down in verse 30, we're looking at Peter. And to get to this point, you know, Jesus has been on the earth for, for a, couple, a few decades, three decades, and he called his disciples uh, from the jobs that they were doing to come and follow him, and uh, he did ministry for a couple years, and he healed people, and he taught, and all the while trying to instill in his uh, disciples, his apostles, uh, uh, invest in them and prepare them for what's coming when he wouldn't be there any longer, trying to get them ready for when they are the ones who are trying to tell the world about Jesus. And he gets to this moment. See, this, this, this moment here that we're going to start reading about in Matthew 26, 30, this is the last week before Jesus is crucified. This moment we're going to start in is the night before he's crucified, mere hours before he's arrested. And they've just done the Passover meal, the Last Supper, and... Jesus instilled new meaning into the Passover meal. Um, and they celebrated the Lord's Supper. And then Judas left the group to go and do his deal. And they do this thing in verse 30. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now it says they've sung a hymn. That's not like our hymn books we have in a closet back here. They didn't grab a hymn book and sing a hymn from a hymn book. This was most likely Psalm 115 to 118, which was usually sung by Jews in that 
particular day and age, many today still, at the end of the Passover meal, they would sing Psalm 115 to 118 as like a continuous song. Uh, and so that's probably what they did here. They sang those psalms at the end of their meal. And then they go out to the Mount of Olives, which is this hill right outside Jerusalem. And it was a common practice. They did. Jesus and his disciples would go out to the Mount of Olives and spend some time there. And when they get there, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says this, verse 31. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Now, Jesus is quoting an Old Testament prophecy there. It's from Zechariah chapter 13. And in that prophecy, what it says is that the shepherd is equal to God, but God is going to strike the shepherd so that he dies. And then all of his sheep will run away from him. And so what Jesus, in quoting this, he's saying, he's he's reiterating to them stuff he's already told them. He's saying, guys, I am God. I'm going to die tonight or tomorrow. But all of you, my disciples, are going to run away from me. That's what he's telling them in quoting this prophecy. Verse 32, then he adds something after the prophecy. He says, but after I am raised up, I will go before you into Galilee. And so Jesus tells them, he's told them this part before too. He says, not only am I going to die, I'm going to raise from the dead. So don't be scared, don't be worried. You're going to see me die, you're going to hear that I died, but I'm not going to stay dead. So don't worry about it. And so he tells them this. But as they have done every other time Jesus told them this, they skip right over this part. Look at Peter's response in verse 33. But Peter answered, and though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. So Peter completely ignores what Jesus said about the resurrection. Peter feels offended that Jesus said, all of you people are going to run away from me. And so Peter says back to Jesus, Yeah, no, Jesus, I love you more than those people, these disciples that I'm saying this in their earshot. I love you more than them. So they don't love you as much as me. So they're all going to run away scared. But Jesus, I'm going to stand right next to you no matter what happens. It's easy to say that when things are good, right? It's easy to say that when you're not in the middle of the storm, when you don't know what's coming. But Jesus knows what's coming. And Peter makes this statement. Look what Jesus says back to him. Verse 34. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, This very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And the disciples, and all the disciples said the same. So Peter cannot believe that Jesus would say this. You're all going to run away from me. And then that Jesus adds this moment and says, you are going to deny me three times. You're going to reject me three times before we even get into tomorrow. The rooster's going to crow, and you're going to have rejected me three times before we even do that. And again, remember, Peter said, with all the disciples standing there, I don't care how much they run away from you and how little they care for you, Jesus. I love you so much, I'm never going to run away. And so Jesus responds still with all the other disciples listening and says, no, Peter, they're going to run away, but you're going to reject me three times tonight. And then Peter responds, I'd rather die than that happened. I would die right now rather than reject you at all. There's great pride in what he's saying, great hubris in what he's saying. And we all know pride comes before a fall. 
Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, let anyone who takes a stand take heed lest he fall. That you may think you're all secure in your footing and you may think everybody else is going to fall and you never will, but you better watch out. Because as soon as you think everything's hunky-dory and you're all good and secure and strong, enemy's coming for you and you don't see him. Solomon wrote in the Song of Solomon what he calls little foxes that sneak in the garden. and You don't even know how they got in or where they got, but they're destroying everything you have. And so Paul's saying, watch out, you think you're all good. Jesus is telling Peter, Peter, you need to shut this down, this pride you're displaying in front of everybody, because you're the one who's going to reject me way more than them running away. Now let's look at that over in, uh, jump down to verse 69 there of Matthew chapter 26. You see, what happens is just a few moments after this that we just read about Jesus saying this to Peter. Jesus goes off and he prays and he comes back. The disciples fell asleep. He goes off and he prays again. comes back. The disciples fell asleep. Wakes them up. And then here comes Judas with the mob that he went to get. The hired, the hired mob that he went to get. And he walks up and they'd had this prearranged signal because it's dark and they don't know which one is Jesus. It's prearranged signal. Judas, you go up and, and you give us a signal that that's the guy and we'll arrest him. So Judas goes up and his signal is the traditional greeting. He kisses Jesus on the cheek and the mob says, are you Jesus? And Jesus says, I am, which is the name of God. And what scripture tells us is when he said that, the whole mob collapsed to the ground through the power of his voice. The mob stands up, go to arrest Jesus. And Peter's panicking. At this moment. I mean, they're all panicking, all the disciples. Peter's got those words ringing in his ears. You're going to reject me before the morning comes. Peter says, not me. And he pulls out a sword he has and swings it and slices an ear off of one of the guys there. Jesus rebukes Peter in front of the disciples, in front of the mob. says, put that away. Then Jesus heals the guy whose ear got cut off and then goes willingly with the mob. Without fighting, without any disturbance, he just walks with them. And that all the disciples run scared for their lives. But two of them, in their running, hide and watch where, where Jesus is being taken. That's Peter and John. And they follow along. Jesus is taken to uh, uh, the high priest's house, which was this massive palace, this fortress. He's taken in there to be put on trial. And there was something unique about this trial, though. It was illegal the way they were doing it. Trials were supposed to be held in public in the daytime. They did it at night privately so no one else could see what they were doing. So they were breaking their own laws and making this trial happen. And so they bring Jesus into the uh, house of the high priest. And Peter and John get into the courtyard of the high priest just trying to hear what's going on. And there's lots of servants milling about. The high priest was very wealthy. And, and so they can get lost there with all the people, all the activity in the courtyard. And so they're getting right up into the enemy's camp because they just want some news about Jesus. And that's where we get here in verse 69. It says, Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. And a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. Now she calls Jesus a Galilean, of which he is not a Galilean. But I don't know if you can really hear the... I'm still not sure about that. Siri's not sure that Jesus is a Galilean. I don't know if you heard that. Because he's not. So thank you, Siri. Uh, uh, Jesus is not a Galilean, but this girl calls Jesus a Galilean. I don't know if you can hear the, the tone, the inflection there. 
Because Judeans, those from around Jerusalem area, looked down on people who were from Galilee. Like, thought they were, you know, less than they were. Because they, they grew up by Jerusalem. They lived by Jerusalem. That's a holy city. If you're from Galilee, then you're kind of like dirt. I mean, you're up there past the Samaritans. You're, we don't like you. You're, you're nasty. You're bad. You're just, Samaritans are just a little bit lower than you. And then there's you. And the Gentiles are way down at the bottom too. We don't want any of y'all. And so she says, you're like, you were with Jesus the Galilean. Kind of implying Jesus is less than. Insulting Jesus. As a servant there in the high priest's house, she probably heard the high priest call Jesus the Galilean. And so Peter hears this girl calling this. And verse 70. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. Peter's scared. Remember, he's in the courtyard of the high priest. If they think he is with Jesus, they're going to arrest him and take him in there with Jesus and put him on trial. And Peter knows this is a legal trial. It's at night in private because they're going to they want to get their way. And this is not going to turn out good. So Peter's scared. He denies it. I don't know what you mean. So he backs up from the courtyard, verse 71. When he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him. And she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. She uses Jesus' more official title, of Nazareth. Not Galilee, of Nazareth. And Peter hears this, and again, this is the second person. He, he's really panicking now. He went out to the entrance. He went out to the gate thinking he could get away. But somebody came up to him again. Verse 72. And again, he denied it with an oath, saying, I do not know the man. He's saying, I, I promise in the name of God, I promise on the foundation of the temple, I am not one of his disciples. So he's issuing promises here with this one. Verse 73. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, so Peter's becoming an issue of conversation, and they said, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. So Galileans spoke differently than people from Judea. And they're saying, yeah, you sound like a Galilean. You're talking like a Galilean. You're less educated than us who are down here from, from Judea. You're, you're one of those bad Galilean people because of the way you're saying your words. You know, you're, you're using double negatives and all this whatever stuff. You're saying ain't, you know, whatever. You know, they, and so they're looking down on Peter and saying, we don't like your accent, so you must be from Galilee. Your accent betrays you. Verse 74. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. Now, those two words there, he, he invoked a curse on himself and began to swear. Some people take that to mean he's cussing, using profanity. And so, honestly, I've heard preachers use this and justify using profanity themselves. Well, Peter did it, but that's not at all what it's meaning here. When we use that phrasing, you know, when he says he invoked a curse and he, 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 and he began to swear, when we think of profanity in that way that it's mentioned here, we're taking our 21st century mindset and applying it to what they did in the first century. And that's a terrible way to interpret scripture. What he's doing by, by invoking a curse and to swear, he's saying, may God strike me dead if I'm lying to you. May my left arm fall off if I'm lying to you. I swear that this is not the case. That's what he's doing when he's saying this. So he's not using profanity. He's not saying bad words. He's, he's basically saying, if I'm still alive in five minutes, then what I'm telling you is the truth. God will strike me down. And God would have stricken him down if God didn't have a greater purpose for Peter. And he did. 
And so Peter says these words, I do not know the man. And the phrasing there, immediately the rooster crowed. It's almost as though the, when the last syllable isn't even, hasn't even exited his mouth yet, the rooster crows. And possibly, most likely, because of the size of the compound of the high priest, the rooster's in the same courtyard as them. And so right next to Peter is the, is the rooster. And he says those words, I do not know the man. And the rooster's, I, would, I picture the rooster, I mean, this may not be the way it happened. I picture the rooster looking at Peter and like crowing, I, here it is. And the rooster, honestly, had been put there by Jesus as an alarm for Peter, as a wake-up call for Peter. Peter hears the rooster, turns and looks, and there's, there's recognition, revelation to him in that moment. Verse 75, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. The word bitterly means with great agony. It implies you know, regret and repentance. So he hears the rooster, he turns, he realizes what he has done. He realizes what Jesus said he would do, that he adamantly denied he would ever do, and he actually did it. And so Peter, having rejected Jesus three times, I mean, he's rejecting that he even knows Jesus. He's rejecting the fact that he's one of Jesus' disciples. He's rejecting his calling as a disciple, as an apostle. And he goes out and he weeps uncontrollably. Have you ever had that come, like? An uncontrollable weeping, it just all of a sudden seizes you and you just can't stop. You don't know where it, you may not know where it came from. You may really know where it came from because of the situation you're in or the circumstances, the tears come and the uncontrollable wheezing and gasping for air. And it's happened, I've only, it's only happened to me one time. But, but you just realize, you're like, I didn't, you know, I don't know where this is just coming, like out of my eyeballs and I, I can't control it. And it's just there, overwhelming sadness and grief. And Peter is out there. We don't know where he went, but he runs out of this place, and he most likely collapses somewhere, and he disappears for a time in the scripture, weeping bitterly because of his realization of what has happened. He has rejected Jesus. Ultimately, he makes it back to the upper room where they had spent their Passover meal, the Last Supper, and he's gathered there with some of the other disciples. Saturday comes. We know on Saturday, the high priest and some of the other officials went to Pilate after Jesus has died on Friday. And, and they took Jesus down and put him in a tomb. Joseph of Arimathea, a very wealthy guy, took Jesus down, put him in a tomb. And on Saturday, the high priest and some of the other officials went to Pilate, the regional ruler, and uh, told him, he said, this guy who just died said that he's going to raise from the dead. And we're, we're afraid some of his disciples are going to come steal his body. So they're asking Pilate if they can have some Roman guards to, to station in front of the tomb. Pilate says, yeah, take them. So they put a stone there. They seal the stone. They have the special seal they seal it with with the, with, the, with the sign of Pilate. And they station guards there 24 hours a day. Sunday morning comes. Jesus raises from the dead, stone rolls away, angel appears. The, the guards who were there fall down on the ground as though they're dead. They're playing possum there. Um, some women come to the tomb, see Jesus has risen. They run back and they tell the other disciples, he has risen from the dead. And the disciples don't believe the women. 
They say, yeah, you don't know what you're talking about. But even as they're saying that, Jesus appears in the room in front of them. And Jesus tells them, I am alive. You guys go into Galilee, and I'll meet you over there. And so time passes. They don't know how long they're supposed to wait for Jesus. And so they do. They go to Galilee. They, they go out on a boat, and they start fishing because that's what they do. They're fishermen from before Jesus called them. So they go, and they fish. Morning arises. You know, they've been fishing early morning, overnight, because that's what Jesus on the Sea of Galilee. And they see Jesus walking on the shore. And so they, Peter jumps out of the boat and swims. The other guys bring the boats in. And Jesus is preparing them a meal. And what's important here are a couple of things. Jesus making breakfast for them. I'm sure it was a phenomenal breakfast. But he's preparing the breakfast, and it's very specifically stated in the book of John. The breakfast is being made by Jesus over a charcoal fire. Because it's also recognized by John, remember he was with Peter in the courtyard of the high priest. It was recognized by John, that charcoal fire there that Jesus is making breakfast over, because when Peter denied Jesus, the fire they were warming themselves by in the courtyard of the high priest was a charcoal fire. Peter denied Jesus over a charcoal fire, and now here Jesus is preparing breakfast on the exact same type of fire. And there's no accidents in Scripture. That specific detail is there for a reason. So flip over to John. John chapter 21. Um, It's on page 907. So they ate their breakfast. Charcoal fire. Uh, Verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, Do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. Now remember, when Jesus first told them, you're all you disciples are going to run away from me, Peter said, well, if all of them run away, I won't. I love you more than them, Jesus. They can run away, but I won't. And so Jesus' question to Peter is, do you really love me more than these? Mr. Reject me three times, do you really love me more than these? Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So Jesus gave him a job to do, okay? Feed my lambs. Verse 16. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Verse 17. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said it to him a third time. Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So Peter's denial, being over the charcoal fire, he rejected Jesus three times. Now, Jesus asking him these questions three times, do you love me, over a charcoal fire. This time, what Jesus is doing is is he is bringing restoration to Peter. Where Peter three times rejected Jesus, now Jesus is is emphasizing to Peter, I'm going to restore you, and I'm going to restore you in the exact same way, over the exact same circumstances, the exact same number of times that you rejected me, I'm going to restore you. So do you love me? I'm not done with you, Peter. I'm giving you a job to do. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. I'm giving you a job to do. I'm not done with you, but you have to be restored. You see, Peter experienced the lowest of lows by going out and weeping bitterly in agony. But it was a self-inflicted low. 
his own decisions led to that low. But Jesus still had something for him to do. So Jesus came to him and brought restoration to Peter. He brought it to Peter on purpose with great intention. And he restores Peter in that moment by asking him this three times. He's restoring him. Because Jesus' restoration is always greater than my rejection. Jesus' restoration is always greater than your rejection. And rejection of Jesus is, is sin. Rejection of Jesus is rejecting his plan and his will and his purpose for our lives. When we reject, we reject Jesus when we do anything like that. You know, sometimes in rejecting Jesus, we want Jesus to, to offer us full pardon for anything we've done. But when somebody else rejects us or offends us or sins against us, we want Jesus to rain down all kinds of justice on their rear end. And we don't always offer the same amount of grace that he offers to us. But that's a level of rejection as well. When we reject Jesus, he still comes and he still offers us restoration. There's no amount of bad you can do that he still won't come and offer you restoration. The only sin, Scripture says, that is unforgivable, and there is one, it's called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What that means is rejecting Jesus' offer of salvation to the moment of death. That he offers you salvation, and if you reject that offer of salvation right up until you die, you die saying, I don't want any Jesus. Then there's nothing he can do. Because he offers salvation freely, but we have to accept it. He's not going to force it down our throats. Because if he did that, it wouldn't be a choice. It wouldn't be love. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't be what he tells in Scripture that we have to believe. He didn't give us the instruction to believe if there wasn't the choice to believe, if there wasn't the option to believe. He wouldn't have said do it. He would have just done it himself. But he tells us we need to believe. And that's the only way to salvation. Is through belief, not through doing an extra amount of good things, because there's no amount of good that can outweigh the sin. Sin weighs too much. We have to have Jesus' death to pay for our sins, to knock them out so that we can gain heaven. And so Peter, in this moment, experiences Jesus' restoration. Even though Peter had rejected not just Jesus, but the fact that he was his disciple. He rejected any association with Jesus. I don't want anything to do with him. I am absolutely not one of his followers. I'm absolutely not one of his disciples. Rejecting his calling. And so by Jesus coming to him and saying, do you love me, Peter? Jesus is almost saying to Peter, if you're willing, I've still got something for you to do. If you still want to follow me, I've still got something for you to do. You're not done. And, to, re, and to, to emphasize this, look at what Jesus says in verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you. Now, whenever scripture says truly, truly, that's as though he's saying, I, pay attention. Eyes on me. That's what he's saying. Truly, truly, I say to you. When you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you. And carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. 
Now, you may read those verses and say, yeah, I don't see how that says he's, how he's going to die. This was a first century way, a, a kind first century way to describe crucifixion. This was a, a, a type of phrasing they would use to describe crucifixion. Somebody else dressing you and leading you where you don't want to go. So Jesus is telling Peter in verse 18, you're going to crucif- be crucified. That's how you will die. That's how you will die. And by, by John, who wrote this book, adding that little parenthesis, this was to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. Not only Peter recognized this, but John, overhearing this conversation, recognized Jesus was saying, you're going to be crucified. And what's so phenomenal about that, Peter, who ran scared, Peter, who rejected Jesus, in his death, church history tells us, when they bring Peter out to be crucified because he told people about Jesus, Peter sees the cross, and they're nailing him to the cross that they're going to crucify him on. Peter says, I'm not worthy to be tortured to death in the exact same way that my Jesus was. So he says, crucify me upside down. And the Romans were more than willing to do that. You know why? When you you were crucified right side up, almost everyone who died through crucifixion died through asphyxiation. They couldn't breathe because of everything pushing down on their lungs. But when they're crucified upside down, that's not how they died. They died because they bled to death. And the Romans were really good at keeping you alive as long as possible. So Peter's death in being crucified upside down was far more excruciating than the other way because it most likely lasted far longer than the other way. But Peter knew this. And he was saying in that moment, I am not worthy to be tortured to death in the same way as my Jesus. And so he demonstrated phenomenal courage, phenomenal strength, phenomenal perseverance because of of what Jesus had instilled in him through the restoration. If Peter had not been restored, he would not have been that strong. And so Jesus tells Peter, you're going to be crucified. And look at what he says here. After saying this, he said to him, follow me. What makes that so important is every time Jesus called one of his disciples, at the very beginning, John chapter 1, when he called his disciples, he, he, he said to them, follow me. When he called Peter and Andrew to begin with, James and John, Matthew at the tax collector's booth, he tells them, all right, follow me. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me and your lives will be forever changed. And so now here at the moment of Peter's restoration, Jesus tells him again, follow me. Reissuing the calling Peter already had. The calling Peter had rejected when he rejected Jesus three times. Now being restored by Jesus, Jesus tells him these words that Peter has already heard a couple years before. Peter, follow me. Peter, I'm not done with you yet. Peter, I know you did what you did and you said what you said and you made those intentional decisions and you walked away from me and you rejected me in front of all those people. But Peter, I'm not done, so follow me now. You see, other people will say all kinds of things about you because of decisions you may have made or because of assumptions they may have made about you. But they don't determine your calling. But they don't determine your purpose. Jesus does. How many of those disciples do you think knew about Peter's, I mean, John knew about Peter's rejection. John was standing there in the courtyard watching Peter reject Jesus. 
John didn't reject Jesus. John actually ended up following Jesus all the way to the crucifixion, all the way to see Jesus die in person. And he overhears Jesus restoring Peter. And John doesn't hold it against Peter. John, even as one of Jesus' apostles, follows, John, uh, follows Peter's leadership in the book of Acts. What other, what, whatever someone else may say about you does not determine what God has said about you. Ever. Ever. They can say all kinds of things. But when God comes to you and he, he calls you and he says, follow me, his calling is going to carry far more weight than anyone else trying to trip you up. And so he comes to Peter who, who made decisions that brought him to this low, this self-inflicted low. He, he made those decisions himself. But Jesus comes to him and restores him and reissues his calling and says, follow me. Peter brought himself low, and Jesus brought him back up. Because restoration always trumps rejection. Always. Always. You may have made any kind of decision you've made and done all kinds of things that you've done and things that other people would look down upon. But the fact that you're still here means he's not done with you. He still has something for you to do here and now. And so the thing that the enemy would bring back in your mind that sits back there in the back of your mind and in the quiet moments, he brings it back up and says, you remember the time you did such and such? You remember the time that you said that to so-and-so? It may be a voice of somebody in your house. It may be the voice of somebody you see every day or every once in a while who continually brings back your mistake, the thing that you did, the rejection that you had. But Jesus' restoration trumps Whatever rejection was in the past trumps it every time, every time. He is going to restore you. And that, that means the same that if you reject him tomorrow with the same thing you rejected him of last night, he's still going to restore you. That's what grace is. That's what mercy is. And Jesus' grace and mercy have no limitation, have no bounds and so he will continue to bring restoration. He will continue to bring grace and mercy because he continues to bring love and it will never end and it will never stop. And it's something we personally have to work on because sometimes when we see other people, all we see is their mistake. All we see is their rejection because maybe it was against us personally or maybe we were there. Like John, we were there in the room when it happened. And we may have a hard time getting over that seeing that visual. But as we see in the life of Peter, Jesus still offered forgiveness. Jesus still offered re restoration. Not only that, the guy who rejected Jesus three times, Jesus puts in charge of the whole shebang, come Acts chapter 2. Peter would have been last picked on my list. <laughs> he rejected, all right, that's, that, that, you nix that resume, toss that in the trash, let's go to the next guy. Like, John followed the whole way. John's faithful. We're going to let John be the leader here. But that's not who Jesus picked. Jesus went with Peter and restored him in, in this powerful, powerful way to illustrate to us, we will always be restored. And similarly, 
we need to treat others with that same level of restoration. And not let there be a cap on how much grace we offer. On how much mercy we offer. On how much love we offer. We say, man, that person's really getting irritating because they keep coming. Every time they see me, all they do is ask for something. I'm just going to start blocking their calls. I'm going to start dodging. I see their name pop up. Okay, I'm, I'm, I, I'm in the bathroom. I can't answer the phone. You know, I, I, oh, I didn't see your message. My bad. I'm sorry, man. I didn't see it. I think that's what Jesus does for us. Like when we pray and ask for forgiveness, he's like, oh, they're praying again. Sorry, I can't. I just can't hear you right now. I'm just here. This is the 10,000th time you've asked forgiveness for this deal. Just shut it down, man. No, he still offers forgiveness. He still offers restoration. He still offers that same grace and mercy he offered on the first time that he offers on the 10,000th time. And so we have to offer that same to others. We're not supposed to clog the, the, the arteries of his love so that it doesn't flow to anybody else. It's supposed to flow through us to everybody else. Even if that means we continue to offer love to somebody who keeps asking for it. Over and over and over. And there are all kinds of asking, but there are no kinds of giving. And we've got to keep offering it. Because he kept offering it to me. He's given me grace already 15 times this morning, I guarantee you. At least. That I can think of. And so who's to say that, or why in the world should I not offer it to somebody else? Who am I to say, I am worthy of Jesus' grace and mercy, but somebody else isn't? I'm worthy to be pardoned, I'm worthy to receive restoration, but this person over here, man, they've rejected Jesus and this and this and this, and I doesn't even compare to mine. They, they can't. Mm-mm, gotta, mm, no, no, no association whatsoever. No, that's a terrible way to live. If he offers me any kind of restoration, any kind, and I know me, then anybody else can get it. Anybody else can get restoration. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter how many times you've been there and done it, restoration can still come. No matter how many times you've said that one thing, no matter how many times you've been arrested for that one deal, no matter how many times you've offended so-and-so, no matter how many times you've been kicked out of that one place, he can still offer restoration. Because he's not done with you yet. If he can restore Peter and he can restore me, chief of sinners, he can restore any of you. Any single day of the week. Anyone. He can restore you right now, sitting in a green pew, wherever you are. Sitting on your couch at home, watch streaming this. He, he can restore you wherever you are. Which speaking of, let, let, let me talk to the online people real quick. Maybe watching online right now, you're watching online because you didn't feel like you were worthy to come to church. Anybody and everybody can come to church. However you are, wherever you are, you come as you are. Because we all do. We all are messed up. All of us. You want to find a perfect church, you're not. You can set up your own little church in your backyard with just you, and it's not perfect because you're there. But we want to be a church growing together, knowing full well we're all messed up, and we're walking together through the messiness. So however you are, you come. Never think you can't come. Never think, well, so-and-so is at church, and they know where I was at last night. So-and-so saw me you know, smoking that or drinking that or, 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 or doing whatever just this morning. Come. Come. As you are. 
however you are. We've had people come to church high. We've had people come to church drunk. Come. This is where you need to be. Find the love. Find the restoration. Everybody, anybody. And let's be restored to Jesus. So wherever you find yourself now, whatever you may have done or whatever you've seen somebody else do, Jesus' question and word to Peter are just as applicable to us now. And he says, do you love me? And he offers the instruction of restoration. Okay? Follow me. Will you follow him this morning? Will you follow him this morning? Will you follow him in a moment of decision? Will you come to believe that Jesus is the son of God? That he died so all your sins would be forgiven and he rose from the dead so you can live after you die? Will you believe in that today? Maybe you need to be baptized like like those couple we saw this morning. You need to be baptized and you need to show the world that you belong to Jesus. Maybe you need to do a two for one. You need to come and believe in Jesus and go right up there and be baptized. Maybe you need to put your life in the church. Maybe... Maybe what you need to do is you need to come down here in just a moment after I pray. And you need to, to get on your knees before God and say, you know what, God, I, I, I need restoration. I know that thing that keeps coming up in my mind, and it keeps coming up in my mind because I keep doing it five times a day. I need restoration for that thing. And you need to come and be restored. Maybe you need to come and be restored about the spirit you have about somebody else. Because of how you, and you've labeled it, I got a bad attitude about so-and-so, but it goes deeper than that. It's bitterness, it's anger, it's, it's unforgiveness. Maybe you need to be re- restored for that. Maybe you need to pray, you need to pray for the, the soul and the spirit of somebody in your life who desperately needs restoration themselves. Because they keep rejecting Jesus over and over and over, and they need restoration in a powerful way to change them. Because at some point, we're all like Peter, and we've rejected him. And he comes to us in the rejection, and he still issues the, the really, it, it, it is a statement, but it's a question for us. If you are willing, follow me. Let's follow him together.